The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. As always, it's a, it's a joy to be here in this beautiful facility, but as even better than that, it's, it's just a joy to, to be able to be with you all in person. Uh, in fact, this is an interesting dynamic. You all are part of the Christ Presbyterian Church uh, body, but you're a unique campus here at Music Row. There are people who attend uh, the other campuses whom you've never met and quite possibly you've never even seen. Uh, So yet you remain part of the same body. The same could be said about Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. At the time of the writing, it's believed that even for the rest of his life, Paul never visited this church in person, yet he writes a letter to them. It's believed that the church was started by a man named Epaphras, who who may have become a Christian during his visit to uh, Ephesus, where Paul was at the time. He was saved, and then Epaphras went back to Colossae and and started uh, the church there. So Epaphras later visited Paul and began to tell him about a false teaching that, uh, that began to uh, emerge and was circulating around the church. Though we're not exactly sure what the nature of that false teaching was, it prompted Paul to write this letter. And uh, again, having never met these, these people, Paul's affection to them is, is so apparent in the words that he's written here. These are, in a sense, his grandchildren, and so it's in, it's in this passage that we just read where, where Paul gets to his, uh, the main concern. He starts addressing the matter of the false teaching that's circulating. It carries with it uh, a tone different than, say, that of Galatians. When he wrote the letter to Galatians, he was also addressing uh, a false teaching there. But in that letter, he was clearly mad. He was very mad. Uh, you might say that it was a tone of a parent who's yelling at their child who's about to run out uh, into the middle of a busy road. In this letter, Paul is being more systematic. He's building a case. He's pouring a foundation, as it were. 
And we don't know the exact nature of the false teaching, but it's believed based on some of the things he says in this letter and, and even in our passage today, that perhaps there were some who thought, well, a lot of themselves. And, and they were preaching the idea that, well, maybe I'm just a little bit more spiritual than you are. I perhaps have insight into things in the new covenant that, that you don't have. And maybe, just maybe, you can reach the point where I'm at. You just try a little bit harder. And in just the short few verses that we read, there are numerous themes to draw out of, uh, of where he addresses such a mindset. But I want to focus on three that he gives us. And these are going to be our headings for today, for, for those of you who take notes, either uh, physically or, or mentally. These are, these are straight from the text, things that Paul says that we want to pick apart a bit. And all these points should point us to the fact that the new covenant, which Christ himself inaugurated, isn't a covenant for the elite. It's not a covenant for the, for the super spiritual. It's not a covenant for people in a, in a certain league. It's not for those people. And if it's not for those people, who is it for? That's what we hope to figure out today through each of these phrases that Paul says. The first being filling up what is lacking. Filling up what is lacking. That's the first one. Paul says that in verse 24. The next phrase or word in this case is the word mystery. Mystery. He uses that word mystery in verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1. Then again in verse 2 of chapter 2. So mystery is the second heading. And the third we want to talk about is glorious riches. Glorious riches. Paul mentions in verse 27 of chapter 1, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. Then similarly, he uses the word treasure in verse 3. So glorious riches is our third heading. We've got filling up what is lacking, mystery, and glorious riches. Those are the three phrases we're going to pick apart today. So first, filling up what is lacking. And that's a curious phrase that might make you stop in your tracks when you read it. Again, verse 24, it reads... Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. Now, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. What's he saying? How could Christ's afflictions, how could Christ's sufferings, how, how could they be lacking in any way, shape, or form? And, and what, is, what does Paul think, that he can supplement what, what Christ does? I, uh, I have a 16-year-old. And what that means is I have a son who is new at driving. And thankfully, he seems to have a good handle on things, though as with every 16-year-old, as I said, he's new at it. He's new. And the first few times you get behind the wheel, and I even remember this when I was, uh, when I was learning to drive, you've you got you to get a feel for how the vehicle operates. You can read about how a car works. You can even have a deep understanding of how an internal combustion engine works and all the mechanics and inner workings of the car. Uh, but that knowledge really does you very little good when it comes to learning how to operate the vehicle itself. And one of the first things that you have to learn while you're driving is, follow what I'm saying here, the car will go in the direction in which you point it, okay? If you turn left, the car will go left. You're following me here. If you turn right, the car will go right. Right, good. Uh, and now that seems like a very obvious point. And again, intuitively, you understand this before you ever get behind the wheel of a car. But negotiating a right turn and a left turn takes feel when you're combining those things with the accelerator. See, because you can point your, your vehicle to the right, you step on the pedal and you start to go. Now, here's the question. When you turn right and you get to the direction to where you're pointing, do you still want your wheel to be turning right? 
No, you should be done turning right by this point if you're going in this direction. And that's something, again, you only get, you only get that for, for the, the feel. You get the feel for it. You know how you let the, the wheel kind of just slide back through your, your hands as you're, as you're uh, going in the direction that you're, you're wanting to go. And, and again, even right now, it's difficult to explain that because, again, it takes, it takes feel. Um, and some of you might be thinking, that's not how I drive at all. I don't even know what you're talking about. And again, that's the struggle with teaching someone how to drive. I can't just tell you, though that's part of the process too. I have to show you. And even showing you isn't enough. You have to do it for yourself too. For you to really learn how to drive, all the words in the world won't get you there. I have to show. And you have to partake in the exercise of driving. And again, I use this illustration for two reasons. Paul could simply tell us about the sufferings of Christ. For that matter, Jesus could have just told Paul about the sufferings of Christ, but instead he told him he would partake. Paul would partake in the sufferings of Christ. And when we read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, there was a disciple, not one of the 12, but another one named Ananias, And the Lord told Ananias to go seek out Saul of Tarsus, Saul being Paul's Jewish name. So seek out Saul and restore his sight as he had been blinded on the road to Damascus when he was converted. And Ananias said in not so many words, "Uh, what, Lord? Are you sure? Are you sure about this? Do you know all the evils that he's done and the sufferings that he's caused your people? And the Lord tells him, Acts 9, 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And indeed, this is what Paul discovered from the moment he was converted. To be a follower of Christ is to be one who partakes in the sufferings of Christ. In the same way that my son learned to drive a car, he learns the car goes where the steering wheel is pointed. So too the body, the body goes where the head goes. The the body moves in the direction the head tells it to move. Christ is the head of the church. And the church is the body of Christ. If the head suffers, the body suffers along with it. Have you ever had a toothache? It's it's an ache that originates in your head, but yet it can take your whole body out. It can take you down. It's miserable. This is something else that Paul learned from the moment he was converted, when he encountered the Lord and he was knocked off his feet and he fell to the ground and he heard the voice of the Lord say, Acts 9, 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus said to him. Why are you persecuting me? To this point in his his career as a persecutor, Paul had never met the person Jesus in person. Yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute the body of Christ. You see, Paul learned that day that not only Christ suffered in his people, but also that he himself who had made others to suffer for Christ's sake, he would also have to suffer much for Jesus. So when Paul says filling up what is lacking, it's not that Christ's sufferings on the cross was in any way deficient. When when Christ cried out, it is finished, he meant it. Atonement for sin had been made and, and there was nothing further needed insofar as making us right before God the Father. God's justice was satisfied fully and completely on the cross. But what remains unfinished, what remains lacking, as it were, is our completion of being made holy, of being made to be like Christ. Jesus suffered. We are being made to be like Jesus. 
we too will know suffering if we're being molded into the image of Christ. You will know suffering. The church is his body. It is the body of Christ in which he dwells, lives, and therefore also suffers. Do you know suffering? I, I hope you're not in the season of suffering right now, but if you are, this is your consolation. Your suffering is not in vain. Your suffering isn't simply a byproduct of a fallen world. You suffer, and while you do, you're being conformed to the likeness of Christ, the suffering servant that Isaiah described and spoke of so, so uh, abundantly. Okay, but why suffering? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to suffer to be conformed to his likeness? Why couldn't it have been something else like eating good food? Why can't I eat good food and that conforms me to the likeness of Christ? I would love that, let me tell you. And the quick answer to that is because of sin. Because of sin. A sin against a holy God is a deed that must be paid for and the payment must be reflective of the act committed. So to satisfy God's perfect scales of justice, it required a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is costly. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself to satisfy that cost. And yes, he could have just told us about it. But to really understand, to really begin to understand and be likened unto him, we have to taste of that bitter pill that is suffering. So who is the new covenant for? If we're trying to address these false teachers, who is the new covenant for? Who is Christianity for? Is it for the elite? Is it for the super religious? No, Paul is telling us here that Christianity is for the sufferer. Christianity is for the sufferer. Who is Christianity for? For those who have reached a level of spirituality that the rest of us can't seem to reach? No, Paul continues to tell us. And along with suffering, he uses the word mystery. It's a great word, mystery. Next one, my, my wife and I, Tracy, we'll have been married for, for 20 years and after 20 years of marriage, I still find myself fishing for compliments. I don't know if you do this, but I do. For example, I enjoy cooking on the grill, as I'm sure many of you do, so I'll often try new things, new recipes of, and ways of smoking various meats and vegetables, and then, and then we try something for the first time, we put it on the table, and I'll ask her, what do you think? Do you like it? Now, what I'm looking for is, yes, it's amazing. But sometimes I'll get something like, hmm, it's interesting. <laughs> you see, interesting can go either way, but it's not usually a compliment in this context. That's an interesting documentary, compliment. That's an interesting brisket, not a compliment. <laughs> Why do you use the word interesting? You know, word choice matters, especially when you have multiple meanings. I ask my wife, hey, how do I look? And if she says, fine, I want to know what she means by fine. The word changes even based on inflection. It's the same word, but it can carry multiple meanings. What do you mean fine? Fine like a precious stone or fine like in fine so-so? <laughs> word choice matters. Inflection matters, right? So when Paul uses the word mystery, we might want to ask the question, why did you use the word mystery, Paul? What do you mean by mystery? Often we'll read the Bible and assume word choice is, is innocuous. You know, well, that was just the word he was thinking about in the moment, but there are multiple reasons why Paul might have used the word mystery. 
This could have been in direct response to the false teachers in the midst of the church at Colossae who might have been insisting that some are closer to God than others and the how and the why are a mystery. So Paul responds with, let me tell you about mystery. You want to know about mystery? Let me tell you. Let me tell you, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the writers of the New Testament use words because of their significance in the Old Testament. Again, it's hard to get into the, the head of Paul, but, but he did this so often where he would borrow a word from the Old Testament and complete the imagery in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul talked about, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, that wasn't a random thought. Hmm, maybe, maybe fruit will work in this illustration. No, try and read through the book of Isaiah and try not to trip over how many times fruit imagery is used, particularly that of grapes and vineyards. So his use of fruit is not by accident. What about the word mystery? This is good stuff. I love this. The book of Daniel is, is a fascinating book because it's written a couple of, uh, in a couple of different genres. Okay, It has elements of historical narrative, as if someone were telling a story, and then it has elements of apocalyptic writing which isn't too common in the Bible. There are elements of it in Daniel, Ezekiel, and of course, Revelation. In fact, the book of Daniel, when we read the book of Daniel, it gives us insight into how to read the book of Revelation uh, because of its apocalyptic nature. Now, having said that, there's an account in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the Bible, dreams are, are highly symbolic. That's characteristic of that op, uh, apocalyptic uh, language. And, and none of the king's interpreters can shed any light on the meaning which infuriates the king. And since none of his wise men can interpret the dream, we're told he has those wise men destroyed. But Daniel, by the mercy of God, was able to provide an interpretation to the dream. We're told in Daniel 2.19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And there's that word. And that word mystery is used seven more times in that chapter, including verses 29 and 30, where Daniel says, and he who reveals mysteries, that's God, made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. The mystery has been revealed to me. It sounds a lot like what Paul is saying. In other words, something once hidden is now revealed. Something once secret is now made known. Something once obscured is now plainly seen. And Daniel is the instrument which God has used to make this mystery known. And at least to me, it's really interesting what Daniel revealed in that dream. You see, really quickly, the king's dream is about a giant statue. Maybe this uh, is familiar to you in, that, in that, uh, that book. Giant statue. He has a dream about a giant statue whose, whose head was made of gold, chest and arms made of silver, middle and thighs made of bronze, and its legs made of iron and feet part of iron and part of clay. But, but a stone, as Daniel says, so you got this giant statue, a stone that was cut out by no human hand, struck the statue and broke it to pieces. And Daniel tells us later in that chapter exactly what the dream means. The interpretation is given to him by the Lord. The top section of the statue represents the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. And each of the subsequent sections represent the kingdoms that would follow Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and of course the Roman Empire. History tells us this is how it played out, but this is what Daniel was saying. Four kingdoms, four kingdoms are going to come. But the stone that was cut out by no human hand, which broke the statue into pieces, that's the kingdom of our Lord. 
Daniel 2.44 says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break into pieces and all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. This was the mystery. A message that was concealed, but now revealed by the Lord's servant, Daniel. Daniel was the agent that made the mystery known to the king. He, by the mercy of the Lord, gave that which was concealed meaning and clarity. He detailed the kingdom that would have no end and shall stand forever. So now Paul in Colossians begins speaking about mystery. Accident? Mm -mm. And like Daniel, Paul reveals the once concealed, now revealed meaning. What's the mystery? He says it. Like, Like Daniel, Paul tells us too. Verses 26 and 27, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This kingdom that Daniel spoke of hundreds of years before Paul wrote these words, a kingdom that would have no end, that would stand forever. What would that kingdom be? How big of of an army would that kingdom have? The kingdom that Daniel spoke about is the army of saints, those believers who hold fast to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And this kingdom would rule not from a castle, not from a military stronghold, but this kingdom would rule from the hearts of all believers, Christ in you. But here's the best part of the mystery. This kingdom with no end, this kingdom that stands forever, it's not made up of of Israelites who are once called God's chosen, no. The kingdom of Israel was once only a, a shadow of what would come this bigger kingdom that has no end, comprised of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This kingdom wouldn't be confined confined to a sliver of land in the Middle East. No, it would reach the ends of the earth, which includes the people sitting in the pews of Whiteman Chapel at 1008 19th Avenue South in Nashville, Tennessee. You're part of the kingdom. That kingdom includes you. This is the mystery once concealed, now revealed. Who is the gospel for? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ for the elite? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ for the super spiritual that hold a mystery that hasn't been made known unequivocally? No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you as you are right now. You don't have to lather up a layer of righteousness. You don't have to educate yourself and bring yourself up to speed before you can approach the Lord Jesus. Your only requirement is need, a need of a savior. Look how Paul ends this thought. Look, look where, he, where his emphasis lies. Verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who is it, Paul? You're not being clear, right? <laughs> Just some people. Everyone, he says. Everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. And this is what Paul is laboring to tell the church. It's as if he's saying, this is my whole reason for being alive. To, 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 to make sure you, people I've never even met, to make sure you know who you are in Christ. You are the mystery revealed. Christ in you, the kingdom without end. 
Now, we tie these two pieces together, our first point with our second point. We tie suffering together with the mystery, and we get a taste of the glorious riches. This is our third and final point, the glorious riches. As you'll recall, our scripture reading today opened with, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word suffering. Whatever it is, it's probably not pleasant. Suffering has such a negative connotation, and I dare say not one of us would willingly raise our hands if someone were to ask, okay, who wants to suffer today? Anyone? Show of hands. Anyone? Okay. No one. Yet here Paul says, I rejoice, I rejoice in my sufferings. Really? Really? Really, Paul? I rejoice in my sufferings? You know, is what we're hearing from Paul here a, uh, a humble brag? Are you familiar with a phenomenon that is known as the humble brag? It's fascinating. The humble brag was really taken off thanks to social media. You, you see it everywhere now. And now that I'm, if you have never heard of this, if you're on social media, if I point it out, you're going to see it everywhere now. It happens all the time. Here's an example of a hum, humble brag that I, I found online. The person whom I don't believe to be a celebrity and shall remain nameless, but it's obviously someone who runs around in celebrity circles, they said on Twitter, I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? So sad you stepped on gum on a red carpet. Humble brag has made its way to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says to, to make a seemingly modest, self-critical, or casual statement or reference that is meant to draw attention to one's admirable or impressive qualities or achievements. It would be like saying, I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted from spending all day serving at the orphanage. Oh, okay. Right? You see, it's a cleverly disguised way of bragging. Is this what Paul is doing? I'm suffering, but since I'm suffering for Jesus, I'm glad about it. Not quite. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Because Paul is saying, yes, he suffers. But... Unlike stepping on gum on the red carpet, Paul's making the point that suffering is for all of us. Suffering is for all of us. To be united with Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, is to partake in his suffering. So he doesn't have, have the corner of the market for suffering for Jesus. We'll all do that. We'll all do that. But to be glad about it? Is Paul really glad about suffering to the point that he rejoices? Well, I, I don't think this is all that unusual. I think all of us are wired this way. Paul doesn't have the corner on the market in this category either because what's true, what's true for all of us is whatever we believe to be true about our future has a direct and immediate impact on how we handle our present circumstances. You believe, what you believe to be true about your future will affect how you perceive the reality of your present circumstances. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I've been told that carrying around a child in the womb for nine months isn't easy. I've also been told at the end of that nine months, childbirth can be quite painful and in many cases, traumatic. Yet many of you have more than one child. Some of you, knowing all this information, not having a child at this point in your life, would gladly sign up for this without hesitation. Why is that? Because what you believe to be true about your future has a direct and immediate impact on how you handle present circumstances. And I don't choose the imagery of childbirth lightly here. I choose it because Paul uses the same imagery in Romans 8. In that chapter, he says in verse 18, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then in verse 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, the creation groaned in what Paul would liken to labor pains as they anticipated the coming Christ, the coming kingdom, which finally arrived in the same way. Even now we wait one more time with labor pains suffering as we await the final consummation of his kingdom. And though we experience the pain, we see it through the lens of what we know awaits us, the glorious riches. And again, for Paul, it's not just the prospect of seeing this happen, but to see this opened up to everyone, not just the elite, not just the religious, not just the Israelite, but this is good news for everyone. So he says, I'll suffer now. So be it. So be it if it means I'll be a witness to the glorious riches of what what awaits. And just like he never met the church at Colossae, he's never met you either. But yet here you sit. And the reason you sit here is because of the suffering, of course, that Jesus went through, but that ultimately was passed down. And and we we partook in two. Paul did it, and it goes right on down the line. The thought of suffering dims when held up against the glorious riches of this unfolding mystery, salvation for yes, even the Gentile, the weak made strong, the poor made rich, the sick made well, the last made first. This, as Paul says in Ephesians, is the manifold wisdom of God. His kingdom, his church, his people. So as we approach this table, remember this. The body and blood of Christ weren't just for the elite. The body and blood of Christ, it's it's not just for the super religious. It's for everyone. Everyone with need. That's me, that's you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you for the mystery now revealed in Jesus Christ. That by his body, by his blood, he purchased redemption for, for people like us. Those of, those of us who were once far off now made near, give us, give us strength for the daily battles we face. Help us to remember that the suffering conforms us to the likeness of your Son and help us to eagerly anticipate what waits us, the glorious riches of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. And it's for his sake that we pray it. Amen.